My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. It's simple. Kill the Batman. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Hello and welcome to podcast number 11, the film classification podcast from the BBFC. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for downloading. My name is James Blatch and I have a new co-host this edition and it's Helen Pang, one of my fellow examiners. Hello, Helen. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Well, you're very welcome. It's always good to have a fresh new face and voice, I should say, because this is an audio medium. Um, Helen, we always ask our co-presenters a little bit about themselves, so how you became an examiner. Did you have a real life before you came to the BBFC? I think I had a real life (laughs) before joining the board. Yes, um, I used to be a TV producer, so I worked on various types of programs for the BBC and for Sky and also for Japanese um, TV companies as well. Um, I did that for about 10 years on and off and then joined the BBFC. So I've been here nearly 11 years now. And what sort of programs do you mind oh, me asking yes. you to produce? Um, types of programs include uh, children's science education programs for primary school children. That was really fun to work on because I learned a lot as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds very good. Um, and uh, programs about internet technology, um, World War II documentaries. So really wide range of programs. Um, I really learned a lot during that and stage. The Japanese programs, are they Japanese language? Um, yes, they were Japanese. Do you speak language. Japanese? Um, only a very, very little bit, but um, it's quite complex. My brother stayed in Japan. Isn't the male and female language is a little bit different for me. Yes, other? yes, and it's also you know it's like a very formalised language, and then there's a more sort of casual, colloquial language as well. So it's quite hard to learn, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. I should also say, as we always have to, we are in the middle of a massive crossrail project, which is going on for years, and it's the fun bit's now gone. We are now all utterly fed up with um, the constant drilling and digging but I know it's for a good purpose it'd be a big station under Tottenham Court Road but um, if there are extraneous drilling noises we've just had a long conversation about the dentist haven't we but we won't yes. mention that but if there are <laughs> extraneous drilling noises it's Crossrail not an angry dentist okay Helen thank you and welcome to the podcast well let's um, as always we start with the news section so just anything that's caught our eye that's of interest to the sort of world of film classification and I wanted to start with something it's an area that we've covered the sexualization of children and connected to that is concerns uh, at all levels in society at the moment about uh, exposure to pornography via the internet to children and all eyes have suddenly turned to Iceland strangely because in Iceland they've got quite an initiative going specifically to address the exposure of, of pornography to children they first of all they did some research which found that most children were being exposed to hardcore pornography at about the age of 11 onwards and onwards sometimes younger and they concluded in this report that the chances of reaching adulthood in 2013 having not seen porn is zero Uh, and also the problem of course and this is where I think it was very interesting from our point of view is it talked about the different types of pornography and talked about the increasingly violent and extreme uh, pornography that you get online so the first thing they've done they had quite antiquated laws uh, in Iceland, basically made any transaction involving pornography illegal. So they've they've decided to draw a definition and narrowed the legal definition of what illegal pornography is, i.e., uh, more violent, degrading sexual material, and made that distinction between sex, on the other hand, for sort of eroticization. Now, this is an area that doesn't get a lot of coverage in mainstream media, doesn't get discussed, but actually, it's what we do in this building every day. We draw that distinction, don't we? Yes, um, when definitely. We deal with that category. Yeah. So that's why I thought it was really interesting. 
and they're going to make it illegal to distribute that harmful, as they describe it, pornography. How they're going to do that is the next step and it's going to involve legislation. It's effectively going to involve uh, legislating for the internet, which is the area that all the ministers around Europe and around the world are thinking, should we do this? Shouldn't we do this? It's a, uh, you know, in this one hand there's an argument that places like China and North Korea censor the internet and we don't do that in the West. On the other hand, there's a concern obviously about the type of material and the free access to it. So all eyes on Iceland for that rather interesting approach to it. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm quite fascinated to, you know, follow the, their developments and you know, see how technically they're going to achieve this because I don't know how feasible it really is. I mean, it's a great principle, a good plan, yeah. but, you know, whether they're going to be able to follow it through is another matter. Yeah, well, they might be um, trailblazers here for other countries, so yes, we'll see. Yes, I agree. Some good news from the music industry, which I noticed this week. They've recorded their first growth in 15 years, according to a comprehensive survey. So after years of decimation by piracy and decline in physical media. Sorry, I think that was an email coming in. A strange noise. I'll try and quieten that down later. Um, yeah, decline in physical media, CDs. Uh, the survey says that. Uh, with online streaming leading the way, revenues are going up for the music industry. Now, that's the first time since really the digital revolution happened. Uh, we are obviously much more concerned with the DVD, Blu-ray, online market for films and television episodes but that's interesting that they've got to that point now where they've worked out through i suppose operations like napster and spotify how to make revenue work in the digital area and some optimism yes once. it's taken a long time but it's good that they finally got there i mean you know with the with mobile devices being so pervasive it's just so easy with a couple of clicks to buy music download a film buy a book i mean Ever since I got my iPad a few months yeah. ago, all I've been doing is renting films and catching up with iPlayer. So it is brilliant, the iPad for that. Amazing. Any sort of tablet. The other tablets are available. Other tablets are available too. We should say. But uh, yeah, certainly yeah. For, I think that iPlayer and 4AD, well actually 4AD is not on the iPad I noticed, but iPlayer uh, is. And yes. it's, um, it's, it's great. You can stock stuff up for our train journey. We go on the same no, train line, don't we? And when the trains run, in fact even when they don't sometimes, you can sit there and watch stuff. Um, yeah, we'll see what happens, you know, with the, the film industry. I mean, I we have this discussion all the time, and I, I got called a, a bit of a Luddite in our team meeting yesterday, didn't I, Helen, when I was talking about how I would hope in 10 years' time, when the latest James Bond film comes out, that I could still buy it on Blu-ray, because I want to own it as a physical product. And I genuinely don't know whether I am being Luddite like that, or whether that's a, a general feeling that people with films would rather own them unlike a bit of music where perhaps you're happy just to have it in the cloud I think it depends on the type of film or TV series I mean some things I just want to watch but I don't want to necessarily own or have the box sitting in my living room you know cluttering up the space but certain things I'd love to have and own and you know keep for a long long time so yeah. I hope you'll be able to I hope so do that one yeah maybe it's still. the difference between sort of TV box sets Anyway, uh, moving on, it's been the awards season, hasn't it? And we're not going to go into the Oscars because everybody else has been covering that. <laughs> but I did want to mention the big issue that was at the Oscars that I noticed that absolutely nobody mentioned, wasn't on any of the coverage, but I guarantee it was one of the big issues that was being talked about on the floor, which is this whole thing about digital versus film. And there's speculation, this is the last Oscars with really that number of 35mm films. Half the Best Picture nominations were shot on film, on 35mm half of them shot digitally. There's a documentary which uh, I saw and examined a couple of weeks ago at the BBFC called Side by Side. Um, 
which we had to pass 15 for some strong language. I think it was, who was it? Try and name and shame which director was. All the big directors are in it. One of them kept swearing. Um, and it's a great discussion, not just about the advantages of uh, digital production, but also about the fact that it's changed the way that it works on set. It's changed the fact that you have to change the canisters every 10 minutes and it gives everybody a break and you can the actors from a point of view of the way their rhythm works and where they start and stop and think about how they're going to do and do it again that's changed because you don't have yes, to stop anymore. Yes I was actually reading about um, a director um, mentioned a, an actor who shall remain nameless. I think I know who, who this is. Uh, who used to be able to obviously take breaks all the time and now he's complaining <clears> that he has to be on set all the time and can't take breaks and can't gather his thoughts Poor together bunny. anymore. Poor bunny. Yes, <laughs> the world has changed. Yeah. Is this the one who made a protest, an unusual way of protesting, the fact that he couldn't go back to his trailer and left little canisters oh, I around the set? Oh, I don't remember that Well, there's bit. one very well-known actor who apparently oh. left little canisters of his urine in the corner <laughs> to point out that he wasn't allowed back oh, to his I set. Oh, I think it was. It might have been him. It might have been that one. Um, <laughs> but what was it, you know, so that thing about watching the rushes, the dailies, which come in, you know, they, it goes out overnight to be developed and they watch the dailies the next day. And, and it was quite interesting hearing some of the DPs, the directors of photography saying, um, they'd always sort of told the director, oh, that was a great shot. And then they turned to themselves thinking, God, I hope it was a great shot. And, you know, they sat there sweating at the back of the dailies theatre thinking, how did that come out? Because <laughs> now, digitally, well, you know straight away. Yeah, Have a I quick know. look at it and, um, and do it again. But... Whatever people like, uh, Christopher Nolan is hanging on to film and a couple of the others, whatever they say, I think the reality is we've seen in this building, when I joined, everything was on 35mm. I think there were fewer than 10 films on 35mm last year out of the 850 we did. I mean, it's just gone to digital I know, it overnight. Really has. I mean, last year I uh, classified a documentary called The Last Projectionist oh. about the history of independent cinema in this country. Oh, and it was so sad to... There were so many interviews of, um, sort of elderly projectionists, invariably male, <laughs> but yeah. you know, elderly projectionists just reminiscing about the good old days of working in film. And, and then there was an interview with a, a young person who'd probably been trained for about 10 minutes on how to operate a digital projector. And you know, that's the way we're going, yeah, unfortunately. So, so a lot of other industries have seen this happen, haven't they? This yes. sort of transfer from an old craft to a quick and easy way of doing it. Um, what else I'm going to mention? Yeah, the last thing of the news item is that we have published another set of examiner's reports from the vault, and this is for House of Cards, which was the 1990 BBC political thriller series. Um, the reason we've published the reports is to coincide with the fact that Netflix, it's their first in-house production, have reimagined Michael Dobbs's uh, novel, and this time it's Kevin Spacey. It was Ian Richardson, wasn't it? The first time it was Francis Urquhart. Um, well, Frank is the character in the Netflix version. We've had all those come through for classification very recently, and you can read how it was a post-Watershed series on the BBC all those years ago, adapted by Andrew Davis, of course, went on to do um, Pride and Prejudice in the mid-90s to great acclaim and you can compare I suppose with Netflix now interestingly people say do we become more liberal over time a 15 for House of Cards BBC in 1990 and 18 for the Netflix version that recently went through so quite, quite strong material yes. actually in that uh, surprisingly okay that's our news roundup let's move on to our interview now uh, as we've heard in the past on the podcast we have well I can tell you one and a half full-time education officers i.e. we have a full-time education officer in Lucy Brett and Heidi who uh, both of you both of them you've heard from in the past Heidi is a part-time examiner half the week and then half the week she 
does uh, the education work, which includes visiting schools, but some of us as examiners also go out when we get a lot of requests. And having heard our side of why we have an education programme, I thought it would be interesting to, in fact, I thought it would be interesting for me and us as much as anything else to find out from the students and teachers themselves what they got out of an education presentation. So after I'd finished a presentation recently in South Wales at Neath, I spoke to Christine Lloyd, who was the course tutor, and one of the students, Georgia, who kindly gave me their take on what they'd heard. So I'm in Neath Port Talbot College, one of the places that we trek around to uh, on our our UK tours every year. It's been a real pleasure this morning actually. We spoke to quite a big group in the, in the main auditorium. Christine Lloyd, you are yes. the tutor. So what pupils did we have in today? We had um, a selection of A-level students from film and media. We also had some BTEC students who were doing a full-time BTEC media course. Um, and it was relevant to all of those courses. Film is a part of as well as film studies but the BBSC and the regulation side of it is uh, very relevant to the film studies obviously but for media studies um, it also takes part in the film industry ex uh, part of the media course and certainly for my second years of which are going to be here from now um, they do as part of the A-level course the film industry and one of the questions that comes up in the exam every year is always about the certification and oh, regulation. Really, it's an exam yeah. question? Yes, okay. yes. So, so. They, they really do benefit from something like this. Okay, so Georgia, you kindly volunteered to be uh, on, the, on the BBFC podcast. Um, you sat through the talk. First of all, did you get anything out of it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice to have a talk with someone who actually works with the BBFC and hopefully it'll help me in my exam and benefit. What did you yeah. think? Did you learn anything you didn't know or anything surprised you today? Um, some of the clips that you showed were different to things that we looked at in the classroom. So it's nice to be out of my comfort zone face to face with somebody like yeah. you, like yourself. And when you say out of your comfort zone, probably hostile too took you out of your comfort zone. Yeah, it? I mean, I'm more in the classroom kind of person. Okay. But it's, it's, it's nice to be in a different environment where you talk to people like yourself. Do you feel equipped now to look at a film and have a better idea of its certificate? I think I probably have a better idea of looking at things now after talking to yourself. But um, well, hopefully in the exam I'll get a question like this and I'll be able to look back at this talk. And Christine, do you yeah. think it's been a useful course you don't have to say just because I'm yeah. here you no, don't no. have to say yes it's it's definitely useful I mean in the context what uh, Georgia was saying I mean obviously we show lots of clips in class and we generally relate it to one or two films and try to study those films as case studies and then use the information from the BBFC website I mean today I've given out um, handouts on the film Wild Bill which we will look at again in class and probably watch the film but when there's lots of clips like you showed today, it kind of brings all of the elements that the BBSC looks at and the issues that they look at into a broader context. And, and that's really helpful for the students, um, especially in situations like the exam, because they need to be able to reflect on case studies. And the more they can reflect on, the better. And then hopefully that will help to back up a lot of the information, uh, a lot of the learning material that we use in class. I mean, like, we've, what, what have we done in class? We've done um, 
the Dark Knight. Yeah, we looked at the Dark Knight. And yeah. we use that as a quite also, a good example. We also looked at This Is England. This Is England, yeah. So that was quite good to yeah. see those today, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And it was also interesting with the advert at the end. Because um, <laughs> yeah. I'm of the same kind of feeling, really. Yes, an eighteen, an eight-year-old wouldn't have known. This is the uh, Wilkinson sword mow your lawn, mow the lawn <laughs> advert, which you can yeah. Google and you'll get you you can watch on YouTube. It's uh, a really interesting one to try and classify. It it is, and, uh, and as a as a parent, I, I wouldn't mind my student, my my kids seeing that at all. But it was like it was quite interesting from the students' point of view because they immediately thought of oh, it's got to be you know. 15 or 18 because kids are always quite censorious we always think they're liberal but they're not at all it's quite the opposite so georgia what are you going to do when you (laughs) i hate to say what you're going to do when you grow up but uh, do you look to have a career in media or film i hope to have a career in the media and film industry um but you're not sure what yet or i'm not i'm not sure what i want to do yet no hopefully something to do with journalism or something in the media very good. Well, I've really enjoyed my trip to South Wales. I have to say it has rained almost non-stop. Welcome to Wales. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for talking to me. Yeah, you're welcome. And it was wet, I have to say, the whole time I was there, but I had a great trip down to Neath. It was a real pleasure to talk to such an engaged group of students, as it often is a really rewarding part of our job. Right, let's talk about our special theme for this week. Now, normally we talk about an issue or a particular category. Um, I've decided for this edition that we're going to discuss the guidelines themselves. We refer to the BBFC guidelines all the time in our discussions here. It's a really important document. So I wanted to explain where they come from, how they are drawn up and written. And excitingly, if you stay tuned to the end of the podcast, you can find out how you can help shape the next set of guidelines, which are going to be just around the corner. So Helen, you're part of the team that's now looking at the guidelines with a view to its renewal, their renewal, I should say, towards the end of the year. Brilliant. But let's start at the beginning and just explain what the BBFC guidelines are. Since 2000, um, we've operated under a set of published guidelines, which is a document that explains very clearly what we do and how our age rating decisions are made. So um, they're based on public consultation exercises, um, research and the accumulated experience of um, the BBFC over many years. Um, So um, the general principles by which we operate, the legal framework in which we operate and the main classification issues are all laid out, um, followed by a section on each of the categories ranging from U all the way up to R18. An early example of our guidelines, not published of course, would be um, ex-BBFC presidents um, T.P. O'Connor's 43 Grounds for Deletion, um, which he wrote in 1916. And um, the list was drawn from the BBFC's annual reports from 1913 to 1915, and it shows the type of material that was cut from films during that period. So um, examples include um, the unnecessary exhibition of underclothing or incidents having a tendency to disparage our allies (laughs) or um, subjects dealing with premeditated seduction of girls. What's interesting about that is how enlightened and ahead of its time it was really. In 1916, I mean T.P. O'Connor was a really interesting character. If you read up about him on the internet, he was uh, an MP and he took part in some quite... um, interesting period of history yeah. but there was a man who thought well we're not just going to sit around in the room like I think there are periods of BBFC history where that basically is what happened people yes. sat around yes. and one or two people's views really held sway 
and he said well here's going to be the guideline that that we have written down and we have to adhere to yeah. and that's basically where we've come back to yes. nearly a century later and i think those guidelines really helped examiners at the time to you know ensure consistency in their decisions and that's what the current guidelines are all about today. Yeah, so good yeah. old TPO Connor. Yes. Interesting guy. Okay, well, so the guidelines set all that out, and you know, people often ask me, "Oh, why did you give this a, a twelve or a 15? It's, you know, politely, you'll always answer the question. But actually, if people open the guidelines on that page, there's a really clear indication of why we would have given a particular film a particular category, and. It's not just a glossy brochure that we send out to placate people who complain. I always tell people this is a document that I take into theatre with me and use to make that category decision. Yes, I agree. Um, when an examiner um, views a, f a film or DVD and we're writing um, the report up for that work, um, we always look at the guidelines, um, especially, and they're especially useful when a work falls between two categories as well. Um, so I look at my copy every day. Um, for example, uh, if I'm watching a film, a children's film, I'll look at um, U and PG. Um, for example, under PG, if uh, there's some language in the film, I'll refer to the section um, which says mild bad language only under PG. Or if there's um, a scene of violence um, at PG, moderate violence without detail may be allowed if justified by its context, for example, history, comedy or fantasy. So it's a really good working document that examiners use every day in their work. So how do we draw them up? How do we draw them up? Um, the guidelines are drawn up as part of a collective effort by examiners under the guidance of our director and our head of policy. Um, they're revised every four or five years after a nationwide public consultation exercise um, to ensure that the guidelines and our decisions are in line with public opinion. And that process, um, which has begun again now, sort of every four to five years, I think it's worth pointing out, often people ask me, well, what do we do about complaints? Well, for start, we always answer complaints. In terms of the longer term, what we do with complaints, it's worth pointing out that in a way, they set the framework for where we're going with the next set of guidelines. Because if there's been a, you know, a series of films which got a fairly steady and consistent number of complaints, that gives us a very good feel for the type of public concern areas that we should be looking at in the next set of guidelines. So for a, it starts right at the beginning, all the time, that whole process that even between the two five-year five periods when we renew guidelines, we're always in a dialogue with the public. But specifically, Helen, now that we're going to make that renewal decision, how do we garner public views? Okay, it's a lengthy process conducted right. by a team of independent researchers and they use a method of um, a combination of quantitative and qualitative metho methodologies. It's easy for you to say. Yes. <laughs> um, so this year, 32 focus groups um, based in different regions across the country were chosen. Um, consisting of groups of mothers and fathers of different age groups of children. Um, they were sent full-length films and TV episodes to watch at home before meeting with a researcher to um, discuss the issues in more detail and then they also had to watch um, selected clips from other films just to um, deepen the discussion a bit more and uh, it was really interesting. I attended two of them. Yeah. Um, 
I attended um, a group of mothers of children aged 8 to 14 and one of fathers of children aged 10 to 15. And the discussions were absolutely fascinating. I mean, parents are so much more aware of the need to control their children's viewing habits than a generation ago. I mean, what I grew up with in an environment where my parents didn't know about age ratings and right. so I was watching really really strong films by about the age of 10 so that's um, why you're here Helen. yes I'm really really conscious of the need to yeah. <laughs> protect children from unsuitable material yeah. you know and uh, yeah it was really interesting to attend these focus groups so interesting from an examiner point of view to sit in a small focus group and 32 focus groups is a lot I mean anyone will tell you in in market research areas that's a lot of individuals to talk to so we've gone quite broad in terms of we're also um, geographic spread across the country uh, getting people from rural areas um, and then we're specifically doing a process now that is going to lead to a rewritten set of guidelines I guess at some point you've got to draw all those views together and, and try and find commonality yes I mean um, it's it's a very hard process but our researchers whom we used last time as well do a great job I mean after after all the findings are gathered together they're analyzed they produce a detailed report then the guidelines are revised after we discuss the report internally and we'll have a new version of the guidelines that will be published later this year okay. but yeah it really is a lengthy process that involves so many people across the country yeah, I mean, the figures are quite high. Uh, in the past, we've somehow, one way or another, heard from about 11,000 people, I think, yes, to get to the 2005 ones. A few less, but a few fewer, I should say, uh, for 2009. And one of the quantitative aspects is the exciting part, because this is the way that podcast listeners can have their input to the next BBFC guidelines. How does that work, Helen? The online survey part of the guidelines review um, is already live on our website. And um, the survey asks for your views on the age ratings of recent um, theatrical and home entertainment releases. Um, it asks you how often you visit the cinema, how, how often you watch films online, um, and if you usually watch films with a particular age rating. So the survey takes only about 10 minutes to complete and um, it will be online for about six weeks. So it would be really great if you could um, participate because we'd love to hear your views on film classification. And um, these findings will be added to the focus group findings and included in the final research report. So if you live in a rural area in particular, um, it would be great to hear from you because the focus groups are inevitably, um, you know, city-based. Where well, there's so people, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> so. it's, it's almost impossible to to spend a lot of time in very rural areas, That's that, and that's what this is perfect for. Um, so I think that's a really good point to make. So we're talking back to roughly in the middle of April, people will have a chance to take yes. part in this. Okay, Helen, thank you so much indeed for taking us through the guidelines and fleshing out... You're welcome, James. Everything that happens behind. And I wish you luck over the next few months because it's going to be quite difficult pulling everything together. Thank you very much. But you're very good. I see you in your little office. You, I mean, you are in a rabbit warren area of the building, aren't you? That yes. You're in lines like battery hens <laughs> in small offices. You all have your head down. And instead of watching anime or whatever it is we normally do, you'll be bashing out the reports. Yes. 
just remember how shocked you were as a child. Yes. And the good work you're doing. That's true. <laughs> okay, do you know what we're going to do next time? We're going to take, we've had quite a few questions come in uh, to our email address, which is podcast at bbfc.co.uk. And in the next edition, I promise you, we are going to address those questions as they've come in. So you've got well, a few weeks before our next edition, uh, about the same time as taking part in the survey, if you've got any questions for us about how we do our job, how we get our job, uh, whether we enjoy it, what decisions we've made, why 12A is this, why a film is 15, any questions at all, fire them to podcast at bbfc.co.uk and we will answer them in our next edition. And until then, from me, James Blatch, and from Helen Pang, we say... Goodbye. Goodbye. We'll try and say it at the same time. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>